Matthew chapter 7. We have uh, finally come to the last chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember uh, a while back we started in chapter 5. Jesus there in chapter 5 gave us the, the elements of true saving faith, the elements of, of godliness, what it looks like to be godly. Of course, these are all inner things. Jesus went on to tell us there in chapter 5 that, well, if you are truly saved, then you are salt and light. That's what you are. The question is, what kind of an influence are you having? Are you trying to cover up that influence and hide it? Are you trying to be the undercover Christian, the secret agent Christian? Or are you letting your light shine before a dark world, having the influence that you should be? Jesus went on to say that he didn't come to abolish the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus loved the Old Testament scriptures. He had certainly had no intention of destroying the Old Testament. <laughs> he, was, well, he, didn't, he wasn't coming to throw it out the window and replace it with something else. He's the fulfillment. He made that quite clear to us. Remember, he talked about that in uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it was something that that would not pass away, he says. He talked about that our righteousness should exceed the the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. (laughs) That's a pretty high standard, according to the Jews of of Jesus' day. They thought, how, how can that be? I mean, how, how can you enter into the kingdom of heaven? The problem was the scribes and Pharisees were very self-righteous. They, uh, they tried to get all the externals right, but Jesus said on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. They were like a, uh, a tombstone that had been painted nice and white and was looking beautiful, but on the inside it was disgusting. Rotting, decaying, stinking flesh. That's how Jesus described them. They, in fact, Jesus said they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. Jesus went on to give us quite a few examples of, of what a hypocrite looks like. Several examples of what we should do. What, is, what does God's righteousness look like? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has spent a lot of time condemning these religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And now we're coming here and he's acknowledging that his own disciples can fall into hypocrisy themselves. Do you feel that danger? That Very easy to go there, by the way. That's, that's the natural tendency of our hearts. Jesus adds... A word of caution about being undiscerning here in our passage today. And to avoid the extremes of hypocrisy and, and, uh, uh, and falling into hypocrisy and these sort of things, he gives a word of a caution here about being undiscerning, which is also very easy for us to do. And so he says to avoid both extremes is really an impossible task for us to do in our own strength. So what Jesus does here in our passage for today is he includes a a section on prayer, showing his disciples how to live in balance. Balance is key here. And if we follow Jesus' teaching, it's actually going to allow us to live properly in relationship to others. 
You want to know how to live in relationship to other people? Jesus is very helpful here. We're going to look at what he says. So let's see what these 12 verses say about how we should treat other people. How should we treat other people? Well, the very first thing that Jesus says here in in how we should treat other people is he says, don't be judgmental. Don't be judgmental. Look what look what Jesus... And, and by the way, if you're wondering, okay, judgmental, where are you getting that from? I'll explain it here in a moment. But we've got to ask the question here, what is judging? Because in verse 1, Jesus simply commands us, he says, judge not. That's a command. That's not an option. You can't sit there and say, well, you know, I'll do that when I feel like it or, or not. No, you, you do this or you're breaking God's command. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. So what is this judging? <laughs> how, how can we obey this command if we don't even know what this is really talking about? Well, this is one of those, those verses that, that a lot of professing Christians, they just love this verse. And they throw it in your face often. You ever had it thrown in your face? I have many times. And whenever Christians say that, that something is either right or wrong, or whenever they you, you, you can speak out against immorality or some destructive behavior in someone's life, uh, they're, they're, you know, we're, we're often frequently told that, hey, you're not to judge. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not. That's what Jesus said. You're doing that and you're wrong. Whoa. And by that, they mean, well, any, you know, hey, any behavior is right, and, and your attempt to, to trying to deny my rights is actually wrong. That's essentially what they're telling you. In, in fact, in our postmodern culture where we, you understand post, postmodernism is this, this idea there's no absolutes, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because the statement, no absolutes, is an absolute. Do you find the humor in that? I do. Anyway. But anyway, in, in, in our postmodern culture, the only evil is claiming that someone else is wrong. How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? There are no absolutes. Well, is that what Jesus meant when he said, do not judge? Is that what he meant? Did he? What do you do with these people who come to you and say, judge not? Well, I'll try to be a help to you if you're not sure what that means, okay? Here's what, let me give you a few things what Jesus is not talking about here, okay? Number one, it does not mean a court trial, okay? (laughs) Right, you got judges in court and, and judges are making decisions. Okay, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, he's not talking about a court trial. In fact, uh, the Old Testament talks talks about courts, so that's that's something, of course, God believes in. It is not admonition and correction. The Bible also talks about that. So there's nothing wrong with going in and admonishing somebody and correcting someone. It's not evaluating right and wrong. God tells us to be discerning. 
So what does it mean? Well, the word itself, let's take the word itself, okay? Right there in Matthew 7, 1, it says judge. Judge means basically to separate, choose, select, or determine. So, you know, depending on the context is, is you know, how you determine what, what the word kind of means. But Jesus is essentially saying, don't separate, don't choose, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't choose out, don't select out, don't, you're, you're not the one to determine someone's motives. It's primarily referring to motives, what, what's going on inside. Okay. Now, in this passage, Jesus is referring to the judgment of motives, but he's also referring to external forms. He's talked about some of those already in the Sermon on the Mount. The problem was the scribes and Pharisees love to judge people's motives. They're very self-righteous. <laughs> and all, all along, they, their motives were, were often wrong themselves. But they love to judge other people's motives at the same time. One commentator said this. It's on the screen. This, this was helpful in trying to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is here talking about the self-righteous, egotistical judgment and unmerciful condemnation of others practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. Their primary concern was not to help others from sin to holiness, but to condemn them to eternal judgment because of actions and attitudes that did not square with their own worldly, self-made traditions, end quote. That's very helpful. So what does it mean, uh, then, when Jesus says, judge not? It means looking down on a person with, with a superior attitude. Yeah, the, the person who thinks they're better than everybody else. Well, that was the scribes and the Pharisees. And they love to criticize and condemn other people without loving concern. So, so the, the key component, if you will, that was, that was, that seemed to be totally absent in their hearts was love. Love was absent. So Jesus says, don't be judgmental. So why should we not be judgmental? Why? Jesus gives us a few reasons here. Look look at verse 1. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, or you use it, will be measured to you. Number one reason that I see here is that you're not the judge, capital J, judge. You're not the judge. Of course, God is the judge. So I jokingly like to say, don't park in his parking spot. It's his, not yours. Okay? Don't park in his parking spot. God has has it reserved for him. Okay? He is the judge. You're not. And if you try to be a judge of somebody else, their motives and what what they're what they're doing, then you're making yourself out to be God. And I got news for you, you're not God. None of us are. So that's the number one reason why we shouldn't be judgmental is because we're not the judge. God is. Number two is that God's going to judge you by the way you judge others. Whoa. Think about that. Do you really want to be judged 
the same, with the same standard that you judge other people? Do you? As I look back on my life, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be judged on the same standard that I've judged other people. Why don't I? I mean, that's very hypocritical, isn't it? <laughs> Just like the scribes and the Pharisees. It's wrong, of course. We shouldn't do that. But if we think about, whoa, you know, this judgment I'm bringing to this other brother and sister in Christ, you know, do, do I want that coming back to me in the same way, in the same measure? You know, let, let that be a little bit of a guide to you whenever you're going and, 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 uh, questioning someone else and their motives. God's going to judge you by the way you judge others. So what should we do then? God says don't be judgmental. So what should we do? Do we just do nothing? Is that what we do? Well, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Jesus says in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, brother? <laughs> hey, I see this, I see this little problem in, in you. Here, let me, let me help you out here. And it goes on to say, when there is this log in your own eye. <laughs> Jesus says in verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is not saying do nothing. That's not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus is saying we need to show some discernment. We need to show some love and concern for other people. He's not saying never go to somebody else and, and try to help them. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, though, is we, we should deal with our bigger problem first. The biggest problem the scribes and the Pharisees had was their self-righteousness. They were self-righteous. Because of that, they were lost. They were not citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And so it's sheer hypocrisy to focus on someone else's fault rather than our many faults. <laughs> we, would, we would laugh if we saw somebody walking around here with a tree sticking out of their eye and they're saying, hey, hey, you got a little, you got a little speck in yours. Let me help you, brother. We'd laugh at that, and Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's purposely trying to be a bit funny to get the point across. It's, it's, it's a bit of an exaggeration, if you will, but hopefully you get the point. Only when we have a spirit of meekness and carefully consider our own greater sins are we going to be able to restore a fellow Christian. I love the way this particular author put it. This, this made me laugh. So I put it on the screen here for you. Quote, he says, The tragicomic, he's putting the word tragic and comic, comical together here. That's great. The tragicomic feature in this story is a long-eyed, or a log-eyed reformer saving a specked-eyed sinner. A redwood teaching a shrub to be low-profile, end quote. <laughs> that is awesome! You guys know what a redwood is. Redwoods are huge trees. In fact, I went to the redwood forest in the United States one time, and we actually drove through one. The tree was so huge, they made a tunnel through it. We drove a van through a tree. That's how big the tree was. So imagine a huge, you got a huge tree trying to teach a little teeny shrub to be low, you know, here, 
Here, I'm going to teach you how to be low profile, brother. Follow my example. Yeah, right. You can't do that. So what should we do? We need to deal with our bigger problem first. How can we apply this passage to our lives? Well, the, the obvious, number one obvious thing to me here is avoid judgmentalism. Avoid judgmentalism. God is not saying don't be discerning. Okay, but avoid judgmentalism. Believe that you are the worst sinner you know. That is very helpful. I'm the worst sinner I know because I know myself better than anybody else does. And then walk in love. If you're walking in love, you're gonna, you're going to see, number one, you're gonna see that you're the worst sinner you know. You're gonna see other people, hopefully, as God sees them. That'll help you to avoid judgmentalism. Number two, we must watch out for each other. We must watch out for each other. That is not an option. God says we must watch out for each other. Okay, avoiding, avoiding judgmentalism doesn't mean that you just ignore what's happening in your brother and sister's lives. In fact, Galatians 6.1 says this. Look at this. Galatians 6.1, brothers, that's referring to Christians. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So it starts with looking to yourself, but, but God is clearly saying, you do need to watch out for other people. And number three, at times we will need to admonish someone, but when we do admonish someone else and try to help them, you need to do it in love. Do it in love. Hebrews 3.13 says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to exhort one another every day, it says. Ephesians 4.15 says, We are to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So you speak the truth in love. So yes, you do need to admonish your brother and sister. That, that is not an option. But when you do do it, don't come down like a hypocrite or judgmental or unloving. Be loving as you do that. Number four, don't neglect your own relationship with God. In fact, Work on that. That's the Galatians six one says you have to keep watch on yourself, even even as you're ministering to someone else and speaking the truth into their soul. You need to watch for your own soul as you're even doing that, lest you too be tempted. So don't neglect your own relationship with God. So those are few helpful things we can apply that particular passage. Well, let's move on. How should we treat others? How should we treat others? Well, Jesus says, first of all, don't be judgmental. Second of all, he says, show restraint in sharing the gospel. Now, I'll explain that coming from our passage here. Uh, how, how, how did I arrive to that point? Here, I'll, I'll, 
I'll, I'll ask a few questions and, and lead us to how I got to that point, okay? My first question is in, here in verse 6, is what, what is this holy and pearls stuff going on here? What are the holy and the pearls? Look at verse 6. Because Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, my first question here is, what are the holy and the pearls? Vital to understand that, to understand what Jesus is saying. Well, holy refers to what is sacred. What is sacred? The pearls, you have to understand, at the time of Jesus, the pearls were considered more precious than diamonds. They were the epitome of luxury. You know, they didn't have... uh, they didn't have fake pearls <laughs> like, like we have nowadays. You can hardly tell the difference sometimes, right? You know, between a fake pearl and a real one, right? You know, they, they didn't have, you didn't have, you know, these, these machines cranking out fake pearls. If you owned a pearl, you, that was a sign of luxury. You're rich. Hardly anybody had those. Well, most evangelicals believe what these things are referring to, referring to the gospel. And, and uh, there is biblical proof for that statement. Uh, for example, Jesus himself said in Matthew 13, verse 45, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So Jesus himself helps define what he's talking about here. The pearls there is referring to the gospel. Uh, the, the what is holy is what is sacred, the, the gospel. So Jesus says, you don't throw the, what, the gospel before these pigs and these dogs. Well, is Jesus referring to literal pigs and dogs? No, that's not what Jesus is referring to. But it is helpful to understand what pigs and dogs were like at this time, to understand what Jesus is referring to here. So uh, let me just read to you what this this one commentator said. This was helpful. Quote, to modern readers, the mention of dogs conjures up images of well-groomed house pets. But in, ancient, in the ancient world, dogs lived in squalor, running the streets and scavenging for food like wild animals. To refer to a person as a dog was a grave insult, reducing the person's status to among the lowest in the social scale, end quote. Okay, so, so just get, get your, your nice little house pet out of your mind here, okay? Your nice little house pet is not what Jesus is referring to here. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he's not talking about pet pigs or anything like that either here, by the way. The pig in the ancient world is is also far different from what, what many of us often imagine. Uh, if you're thinking, like, um, of porky pig, wrong image here, okay? Porky pig is not what Jesus is thinking about here. The Jews rejected the pig. And uh, they, they often rejected the pig because pigs were scavenging animals, dirty animals. Uh, they were omnivorous. It means th- basically they'd eat anything. In fact, you know, they, they'd even, they eat, pigs would even eat their own kind. I mean, a pig would, would eat another pig if it had died. Uh, in fact, uh, I've, when I've gone hunting for pigs before, 
Uh, I've even shot goats. You, and sometimes we'll, we even pile up goats because pigs, you know, they get, as the goat flesh is rotting and smelling, it'll attract pigs. They love that. They'll eat it. They'll eat almost anything. So their omnivorous habits occasionally led pigs to feed on decaying flesh, which was something that was totally awful and disgusting to a Jew of Jesus' day. Pigs were often dangerous uh, as they, they'd wander around the fields. Uh, sometimes they'd wander wild in, in the city streets and were sometimes even the, uh, uh, responsible for the death of little children. Pigs can be quite dangerous. A wild pig will grow, will, uh, will grow a very sharp tusk and uh, they got very uh, sharp hooves as well. So what is Jesus talking about here? Why am I bothering telling you all that? Here's the point. These are unbelievers who are adamantly opposed to the gospel. Think of wild, ravaging, destructive animals. Okay, that's what Jesus is referring to here. But, but it's all picturing someone who is opposed to the gospel. These are people who don't deserve to hear the gospel. What is the result? Well, Jesus gives the result here in verse 6. He says, if, if you are not discerning and you give the gospel to, to just anybody, people who even don't deserve it, Jesus says in verse 6, they will trample you underfoot and attack you. That's the result. They trample the good news message and then they'll just tear you apart. They don't love the gospel. They don't love God and Jesus Christ and his work. So, so the metaphor that Jesus is using here is really adding persecution onto rejection. As if rejection wasn't bad enough, Jesus is saying, these type of people, you don't want to give them the gospel because they're, they're just going to persecute you. They're going to persecute the message, do everything they can to destroy the message. The unbelievers will not just fail to respond to the gospel message, but they're, they're actually going to oppress the saints. That's what Jesus is saying. So how can we apply that verse to our lives? Well, I just have one thing to say, essentially, is this. Don't waste the Lord's truth on the unworthy. Don't waste the Lord's truth on the unworthy. It's like throwing you know, luxurious pearls before a pig. The pig doesn't care about your your you know your million dollar pearls. The pig just wants something to eat. <laughs> the pig's gonna you're only gonna make the pig angry. It's gonna stomp it into the mud, and then it's gonna come after you and rip you to shreds. So don't waste your the Lord's truth on the unworthy. However, having said that, we need to be really careful here because <clears throat> most of the time we don't have an issue with that. If anything, we're, we're weak. We're not zealous for the Lord. We're not passionate about God. We're, we're ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And uh, we need to be careful that we don't go too far in this because we can actually, in the process of, of taking what Jesus is saying here, we can actually leave someone who's a true seeker of God and leave him too early. That's a very difficult issue. We need, we need discernment. We need wisdom. Uh, let, let me just give you an example that comes to mind here. You know those five missionaries back in the 1950s who were speared to death by the Aka Indians? 
You remember what happened afterward? You got guys like Jim Elliott and, and Nate Saint and the others who were speared to death by the Aki Indians. What did their wives do? I, I, I can imagine their wives maybe reading, reading a verse like this and saying, Oh, those Aki Indians. Oh, forget it. It's like casting pearls before swine. Really? Praise God they didn't do that. The same Aki Indians who had murdered their husbands, they ministered to. So obviously God used those murderers, those, I should say those martyrs, to accomplish His purposes. So how do we know when to stop witnessing to someone? How do you know? Well, here's how you know. Only when the person knows what they're doing that is, and they're, they're just outright rejecting God and His gospel. And they know what they're doing. They know the gospel, they're rejecting the gospel, and they're, they're vehemently opposing God and His gospel. Then you know it's, it, it's time to quit. Let me just give you a few examples. There's, there's many cult groups, for example, who have rejected the gospel. I think some of those people are unworthy of the gospel. Notice I said some of them. Because occasionally I talk to some of these people who are in these cult groups. They have not openly uh, rejected and, and opposed the gospel yet. They're still open to the truth. But the, particularly the teachers within these cult groups are unworthy of the gospel. They are false teachers, false prophets, openly opposing God and His gospel. So, you can see here, we need to be careful that we're not closed, we're not closing people off to the truth too early. And, and so how do you know whether to share the gospel with somebody or not? Particularly those who are in, who are, who maybe just come into a cult group. How do you know what to do? Well, we need God's wisdom, and since we need God's wisdom, well, then that's where the next point comes in. Because Jesus tells us that we need to pray for God's help. We need to pray for God's help. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus says in verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Three commands there in the Greek language. The word ask is a command. The word seek is a command, and the word knock is also a command. It's not an option. Jesus says we are to pray. Why do we need to pray? Well, number one, God commands us to pray, and we're to do this continually. How do we know that? Because all three of those are in the present tense in the Greek language, which means it's continuous. It's not a one-time thing. It's something we're to continuously do throughout our whole life. Continuously pray. Ask, seek, and knock. And if we pray, what will be the result? Look at verse 7. What's going to be the result? Well, God says there in verse 7, If you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, what's going to happen? You will find. If you knock, which is another way of saying pray, what's going to happen? What's the result? It will be open to you. That's what Jesus says. So God's going to answer prayer. Now, having said that, 
contrary to some popular interpretations of this passage and others like it, verses 7 and 8 are not some sort of a blank check that you can lay before God and, and it's just it, like like anybody can present this to God and God's going to sign that blank check for you. No, that's not the case. By the way, we haven't read verse 8, so let's go ahead and do it at this point. Verse 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Same idea. God's, God is going to respond. So, this is not a blank check for just anybody to present to God. Okay? Not anybody can just say, hey, God says that I'm supposed to ask Him, and when I do, it's going to be given to me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And you're saying, prove it to me. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you, okay? All right, number one. First of all, you need to understand here, the promise is valid only for believers. I'll put it on the screen there for you. It's only valid for believers. First of all, you take the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount. Who is Jesus talking to? He's primarily speaking to his disciples. Yes, there were probably unbelievers there who were listening, including probably some scribes and Pharisees. But he wasn't predominantly talking to them. He talked in third person about them. He he talked about them, but he wasn't speaking to them. He was speaking to his disciples. In verse 8 it says everyone, but everyone does not mean any person whatsoever. In the context of the sermon here, everyone refers to citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, That's, That's what the sermon is about. Second of all, the one who claims this promise must be living in obedience to God. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Notice the next part. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Do not take that verse out of context. <laughs> you cannot cut the verse off in the middle like so many people like to do. Hey, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. I'm going to ask for a million dollars or whatever. You know, People ask for all sorts of things. But they leave off the part about, hey, we have to keep His commands and do what pleases Him. Okay, That's conditional. So the one who claims this promise must be living in obedience to God. Number three, we must ask with the right motive. You can't just ask of God whatever you want and expect Him to answer. Okay? You have to ask with the right motive. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's your motive? Somebody prays and asks for a million dollars. What's their motive in that? Most of the time, God's not going to answer that prayer request. At least not with a yes. Most of the time it's going to be a no. Alright, number four. The reason this is also not a blank check that anybody can present to God is, look at this, we must be submissive to God's will. Are you submissive to God's will when you're praying? Let me give you a few verses to think about here. James 1, 7 and 8 says, 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Well, he's double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man is not submissive to God's will. He's vacillating. He's sitting on the fence. You know, wants to do right and sometimes don't want to do what's right. Okay. Oh, now I want to do what's right, but okay, now I don't want to obey God. Right? He's double-minded. Not submissive to God's will. God says, he's not going to hear you. Don't, 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 this person should not come to God thinking that, that, that God is going to answer his prayer if you're that double-minded person. Uh, another one to think about here is 1 John 5.14. I didn't put it up there, but it says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay? It's according to his will that God hears us. Okay? Some of our prayers are not according to God's will. So you cannot write the blank check out to God and say, hey, God would just sign it right here for me, okay? I'll fill it in later. No. Now, this is an important matter. In fact, we, we had a gentleman leave our church over this particular issue right here. He thought, he thought hey, I can just ask God whatever I want. <clears throat> And he firmly believed that God was going to answer whatever prayer that he asked. And when I challenged it on him, no, that's not what Scripture says. God does not believe that, my friend. He left. I hope none of you do. He left over a non-essential. Okay? God says he's not going to answer every prayer that we bring before him. That is not the point of this passage. <laughs> Okay, so be careful you don't twist Scripture. Let's move on to our next question as we look at verses 9 through 11. How do we know for sure that God's going to answer our prayers? How do we know for sure that God will answer our prayers? Well, what kind of a God do you know? I hope it's the same one I know. God reveals something about Himself here that's very helpful. Look at verse 9. He's using human terminology here to help us to understand who He is. Look what God says. Verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Oh, thank you, Daddy. You know, I really wanted some scrumptious bread to eat. You know, I really appreciate this stone. No, of course not. Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Whoa. If you, verse 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And the rhetorical question doesn't need an answer because the answer is obvious. Is God a good God, a loving God? Of course He is. Of course he is. God is a loving father who gives good things to his children. He's not doing, you know, playing mean games with his children and switching bread for a stone. Or instead of giving you some yummy, delicious uh, fish to eat, instead giving you a snake that's going to bite you. No, 
That's not the way God is. So how do we know for sure God's going to answer our prayers? Because we have a loving Father who gives good things to His children. In verses 9 and 10, there's two rhetorical questions there that don't need to be answered because the answer is obvious. Of course God's not going to do the switcheroo on you and, and give you a stone instead of food. Of course God's not going to do the switcheroo and, and, and give you a snake instead of the fish. God knows we need to eat. He's not mean. He's not unloving. And so in verse 11, he gives that comparison there. Of course God is, is more loving even, more caring than an earthly father. My friends, I wouldn't even do that to my own earthly children. I would not put a snake on the plate of my children in place of delicious, yummy food. I wouldn't do that. Why? Because I love my children. It would be unloving to put a snake on the plate. God's using that as the comparison here. If, if we as earthly parents would not do that to our own children, God's saying, of course. Would you expect anything less from me? Of course not. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? Number one, when making decisions about admonishing someone, ask God. Okay, it's simple, but we often don't, we, we, we often don't think of God first. We don't think of prayer first. But that's where we should go first. God wants us to ask, by the way. God says to ask and commands us to ask. And there's a hymn that says it so well. There's a hymn in our hymn book I love so much. It says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Don't bear it. It wasn't meant for you to bear. So my friends, Jesus wants to apply this prayer, especially in times of helping a fellow Christian uh, deal with sin in his or her life. And also when deciding whether or not we need to break off contact with an unbeliever. If that unbeliever is unworthy of the gospel, we need God's wisdom. You know, it, it, sh- should we stop giving the gospel to this person or not? We need God's wisdom. So those kind of decisions cannot be made by just our mere human reasoning. Why? Because you can't see a person's heart. So we need God's wisdom in making those kind of choices. And so God says, come to me to find that wisdom. So you know how to treat other people. Number two, limit your prayers to what is good for you. Limit your prayers to what is good for you. The text in our Bible here says that God will give good things. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? God's giving is limited to what is good for us. Not, it's not by what we want. Sometimes what we want is not good for us. Sadly, some have taken passages such as this one. They've developed the, the unbiblical philosophy of name it and claim it. Heard that philosophy? Used in, in sadly, too many churches. Just name it and claim it. It's not mind over matter. <laughs> the Naban and Klamath theology is unbiblical. It's ungodly. 
and, and God hates it. And you're saying, well, what is this name and acclaim it theology? It's, it's the, the basic idea that God's going to give us whatever we want. Really? God is not that kind of a God. This teaching is incredibly dangerous. In fact, it's, it's actually heretical because it says we control God. It says that God is, is a vending machine and all I have to do is punch in A1 and I'm going to get what I ask for. May I remind you that sometimes even the vending machines don't work properly. <laughs> right? Put in your money, press A1. Hey, wait a minute. You start shaking the machine because you didn't get what you want. Right? God is sovereign, my friends. He reigns supreme over his creation. We are not sovereign. So the promise is here is that God will respond with good things, not just anything that we like. <laughs> By the way, parents do the same thing, don't they? Okay, Loving parents don't just give whatever their children ask for. Okay, We don't give kids whatever they want. Because children are immature, they don't know everything, they don't know actually what is good for them sometimes. So if the parent truly loves a child, they're often going to say no to that child. Because, I mean, think about it. Here's a silly example. Let's say a child says, hey, daddy, 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 I, I want a whole ton of candy. I want a whole ton of candy. Would you give me a ton of candy? What's the parent going to do? Any loving parent's going to say, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to give you what you want. Why? Because the parent knows a lot of sugar is not good for the child. That much sugar is not good for the child. Guess what? God is a loving father, and, and he gives only what he knows is best for his children. Sometimes we just want to suck on a lot of sugar. <laughs> We don't actually know what's best for us. And God says, no, I know you better than you know yourself. I'm only going to give you what is best for you. So limit your prayers to what is good for you. Well, Jesus moves on and, and ends this, this, really, he ends the whole body of the sermon. It's not the end of the sermon, but the, the middle body of the sermon, he ends here in verse 12, and it's what we call the golden rule. It's kind of the, the bookend that started back in chapter 5 when Jesus was talking about the Law and the Prophets. He came to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. That, that's kind of the beginning bookend. This is the end bookend. All right. So Jesus tells us here how to treat others. He says to obey the golden rule. This is a command. And the, here's the golden rule in verse 12. He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the Law and the Prophets. That ends the body of the sermon. Next week we'll look at the rest of the sermon, but essentially Jesus is saying, obey this golden rule. You say, well, what is the command? Essentially Jesus is summing up the body of the Sermon on the Mount. We know this because of that little word, so. So so is kind of, uh, Jesus is using there, saying, hey, I'm wrapping up this sermon. Here's the, the end of the body. Many scholars agree that Jesus was really developing Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. You say, what's the point? The point is we should treat others as we wish to be treated. Do you do that? 
Do you treat other people the same way you want them to treat you? That's the golden rule. Now, there's three things that make this a really strong statement, okay? Number one, the, pre- there's the present tense is used here showing that this is an ongoing principle. This, this isn't just something you do once in your life. This is something you do all throughout your life, for your whole life. Continually do it. Number two, the word whatever makes the golden rule a universal demand. It's a universal demand. Jesus says, whatever you wish. Universal. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. And number three, the phrase there, you do also to them, is stressing the obligation that every disciple has to live according to this standard. Every disciple has this obligation. It's not an option. And what is the reason for this command? Well, Again, look at verse 12. Jesus says at the end of verse 12, For this is the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? Well, here's the point, my friends. The, The golden rule here is the essence of the law and the prophets. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's back up, okay? Part of the law was the Ten Commandments, right? Part of the law was the Ten Commandments. You remember the Ten Commandments were broken up into two parts. The first part says to love God. The second part of the Ten Commandments teaches us to love others. In fact, it gives us several ways in how we are to love others. For example, it's not loving to go and murder someone. It's not loving to commit adultery. It's not loving to steal other people's belongings, right? Okay, those are just some of the ways that God says is how we are to love other people. Okay? So, so, so the, the law is summed up in the two greatest commands Jesus gives, which is you love God with all and you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is kind of the, the essence of that law. You, you, you do unto other people as you want them to do to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how can we apply the golden rule to our lives then? Well, here's the point. Do only to others what you wish to receive from them. If you don't want somebody to steal from you, don't steal from somebody else. (laughs) Right? It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to covet. It's wrong to do the other things that are mentioned in the Bible, right? So the whole emphasis is on what we do for others here, by the way. There's no expectation of actually getting anything back in return here. We, we tend to focus on, well, what am I going to get out of this, right? That's how we tend to focus. But that's not the focus of the golden rule. The golden rule is about you serving other people. The golden rule is not about what you can get. In fact, the verse says, do to others what? It's about you doing. The the, the verse doesn't actually say, do to others so that I can get. That's not what it says. So the golden rule is not about what you get. And by the way, this is not some uh, form of radical humanism, as some have said. Not radical humanism. Why? Because this rule here is, is completely dependent upon the preceding verses which deals with our relationship with God. 
verses 7 through 11 is all is, is, is showing that we are dependent on God for our relationship. My friends, it's about God working through us. We cannot be good neighbors, loving good neighbors. We cannot love other people as we love ourselves in our own strength. That's not possible. We love ourselves a lot, but we're not, we, don't love, we don't love other people as we love ourselves, generally speaking. Certainly not without God's grace. So, the only way this is going to be possible is through God's goodness to us. As you and I experience God's goodness and His grace, then, and only then, are you able to share God's goodness and grace to other people. And flesh that out and, and give that away, so to speak. Then we're going to have that. Then we can finally have the proper model to follow and the proper source of strength. As you experience that that fellowship, that relationship with God. But without that, you know, too too many even unbelievers like the golden rule, don't they? Unbelievers even know the golden rule, and sometimes we even quote it: "Hey, do to un, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you." Right? They love throwing that verse around. They don't really know what it means. They, they think it's all about, hey, what I can get, you know. Hey, you know, be nice to me because, you know, you're supposed to do unto others as you have them do unto you, right? No. The basis, the foundation comes back to who God is. Ex- experiencing God and His fellowship and His relationship in your life. Only that kind of a person can do to others as God wants you to do. May God help us.